in a study um, shepherding or the idea of biblical ownership, biblical radical stewardship in 1 Samuel chapter 17 this morning. Uh, we're going to have to do some retraining. They're talking on the stairs. Ah. Moms and dads, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I can still hear them talking and shouting, and that is a lack of training, and we're going to fix that. So sorry about that. Um, but don't worry. It's in the Matthew folder, I think, Joel. Uh, it's biblical ownership number four is our message this morning, and I'm going to pull that up if I can. Yeah. Well, it keeps doing that. I don't know why it keeps doing that. One second. That's what we want. This may be a little bit different take on Matthew or First Samuel 17 than you've had, but it's where you're headed if you read it and you read it and you read it. A lot of reflection on the story of David and Goliath will render what we're going to discuss today because of the literary design that Samuel has or whoever, whatever prophet wrote for Samuel 17. I, su- I assume it was Samuel, um, but it was whoever it was, it was a prophet of Yahweh. And the question that develops between 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17 is this question on the screen. Who, who is the shepherd? The person that's supposed to shepherd my people Israel, it should be the king. To, to do this right, to do it properly, the king has to have empowerment from God. He is an executive or an executor of the law that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai, and that is true of the judges. That's true of the uh, people in Moses' train. Moses was an administrator. He was an executive. He was given this sacred delegation, this sacred trust from the Lord to watch and look over national Israel. Uh, and, and now it's gone to a king. And do you remember 1 Samuel 8? Give us a king like the Gentiles. They got one. It's Saul. And then Saul failed as the Gentile kings will because he didn't trust God but disobeyed God. And so he lost the dynasty. God said, I would have made you a, a dynasty. I would have made uh, kings come from you and set them on a throne. But now, no. Somebody that's not your heir will be king. And I've chosen a man. And we first hear about David, 1 Samuel 13, as a man after my own heart. That's who's going to be king. And it's not about the outside appearance. Saul is head and shoulders, literally, above everyone else. Not that he doesn't have dandruff. He's just tall. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. And, and it looks like he should be the king, but he doesn't have the heart for it. He doesn't have the inner part that makes the king successful in God's eyes. And that is a, a big part of the development of the arc of David's story. David made some horrible mistakes, but he's never known to have worshipped false gods. David might have, and he did, disobey God, and God held him highly accountable for his horrible missteps. But it wasn't, as it were, a a lifestyle pattern for David, as apparently uh, equivocation, self-justification, emotionalism became for King Saul, as you see his character decline. What I'm saying is that the shepherd is supposed to be the king, and the king's supposed to be the shepherd, but you have to be equipped to do that, and Saul isn't the man to do this inside, and so he can't do it outside, and he loses the empowerment of the Holy Spirit um, 
which, which we call endowment in the, this era in the Old Testament, where a few, a very small number of people recorded in the scriptures were able in the power of the Spirit to do something for their, for their delegated responsibility. Now, why this is coming up in biblical ownership and the concept of, of radical stewardship, the reason we're talking about this is because it's a great example for all people to look at how to think about our God and his delegated responsibilities. I don't know of a greater example in the scriptures of Samuel and David in their interaction in chapter 16, especially Samuel, delegated with the word of God, and then David with the ability that God has given him and the character and the heart that he's given him, that he's a steward of um, what God has entrusted, so he becomes a steward of the entire nation. David kills Goliath with shepherd's tools. And it's real explicit in the story that he has to use shepherd's tools. It's all he's equipped for. So let's read it. I'll try to highlight what I'm saying here in my understanding of the the design of the message. And understand, I am an apologist for 1 Samuel. I believe it is the word of God, word for word. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to write every word the way he wrote it in his original autograph. We do not have a copy of that autograph. And the study of this text in Hebrew is particularly challenging particularly challenging because of uh, textual variance. And so just understand it's harder than reading Deuteronomy for that reason. I'm an apologist for the book of 1 Samuel, and I want to say that the opponents of my view like to be uh, cynically, um, they, they like to be cynically um, smarter than the average recipient of this text and say, obviously, this is a political treatise designed to promote David for David's party against the Saul party. And so it's considered uh, sociologically savvy to know that this is just this is just propaganda. This is Davidic propaganda for the ascendancy of David. Can you guys figure out how to scoot down one and then sit down? There you go. That's how you do that. So, so the question of who is the shepherd, if this is inspired by God, is answered by the man after God's own heart. And it's about the inner person, and it tells us to get, get busy with the things of God, just like Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So let's read it. The setting in 1 Samuel 17 is in verses 1 through 3, and it's the geographical setting. The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. That's like on the south part of this, this valley. And they camped between Succo and Azekah and in Ephes Damim. And the main thing to know about that when you do the map, and I can't do that right now with you, but it's basically really a real clear valley with two high points on either side of it that run a long way along this valley. It's really a neat place uh, to, to almost like a, <clears throat> like a, like a theater setting where the, where the stage is down here in the valley where the battle's going to take place and the people, the spectators are up in the, up in the, balc- up in the, the bleachers watching. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the Valley of Ella and drew up battle array uh, to encounter the Philistines. And, and by the way, they're, they're toward the Philistine uh, five cities. They're, they're not too far from Gath and the other cities, and that's why they're able to pursue them as far as Gath that day of the battle. But the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, the valley between them. And now we're going to introduce, and this is how you tell a story, you've got to introduce the bad guy or the conflict in order for the story to pop. We all have to get scared like Israel's scared. So we hear about the champion, the big fella. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. Do you want to know that that would be pronounced Goliath? That's probably how his mama called him, Goliath. Um, It it sounds a little different when you say it in Hebrew. 
But I just wanted you to know, this was all written in Hebrew, and we're reading in English. Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, and there's a textual argument, and the Hebrew scholars will argue about this, and we say that means nine foot six, and they'll say that means closer to six foot nine, and I'm a nine foot six person. I think that's what is, this means in the original. So he is monumental uh, compared to everyone else around him. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. And this is the end of the Bronze Age. The, the beginning of the Iron Age is right about in this time. And that's why throughout the stories in Judges and then in early Samuel, we're talking about the Philistines of iron chariots. But maybe Goliath is just old school. Or maybe uh, iron is too heavy even for someone as strong as him with how big his head is. Um, but in, anyway, it's quite a picture you have of this burnished bronze, um, Greek-looking giant hoplite on the battlefield. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Everybody got a picture? Well, let's go to the weaver and see what the weaver, it's really long, the weaver's beam to make some long broadcloth. And the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shielded carrier also walked before him. It's a heavy spear. So you just, what you're doing as I'm summarizing kind of flying over the story is you're getting this image, this idea of how big this man is. He's really dangerous. And the bigger he grows, the more uh, magnificent is the event. And that's how it works. And now, now we're, we're really um, careful about this. The message of David and Goliath, I believe from 1 Samuel, is not you can face your giants too. I don't think that's the message here, but it's a certainly good application that you can make from this. And the way you can face your giant is be a man or woman after God's own heart and take the, the, the gifts that he's given you, especially the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart to abide forever and walk by the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit. You can take the resources God has given you and you can do magnificent things that God has uh, arranged for you to do. There's very clearly an arrangement God has made here. This is if you're t think about if you're going to write a story, if you're going to write a story or a screenplay for a film or a play or something, and you want people to pay attention to it, there has to be some sort of problem that gets solved. There has to be. I mean, it's Christmas time. Some of you are guiltily watching Hallmark movies. We shouldn't be wasting our time this way, but it's just so good. The cookie, the bakery is is in is in uh, risk of bankruptcy, and me and Mr. Potter downtown is is pulling all the strings and. And, but, but the good guy comes back to town after being away for a while, and he puts it back together. I mean, there's all, no, I don't care the story. If you're going to pay attention, there has to be some sort of problem that gets resolved. Romantic stories about men and women, and that kind of romance, I don't mean literary genre romance. I mean, I mean actual boy-girl, you know, the, the old story. Um, the conflict is, will they get together or not? Can they get past their own stupidity and, and obtuseness and, and, uh, and actually be people of character that should assemble and uh, that kind of thing? And, and whatever the story is, you have to have a conflict. The conflict here is a, is a supervillain. And there are supervillains, and we wonder why. Why does God allow this? Goliath serves a purpose in God's design. Do you know what his purpose is? Goliath serves a purpose, and this applies to you. The purpose of Goliath is that being such a heavy obstacle for David to overcome, he becomes launched into the hearts of the people as the great hero. That's the purpose of Goliath. So that 1 Samuel 16, who's the shepherd? David is going to be the shepherd. God chose him in 1 Samuel 16 and told, 
through Saul, through Samuel, that this is the one, and told David he's the one, and very few other people, it was in secret. The whole nation now knows he's the one because he's the hero. And that's what Goliath does. No Goliath, no Saul has slain, slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. So I've given you a picture of a fantasy wolf. Now, why did I select a wolf? You're like, that doesn't look like a wolf. Trust me, I Googled it. That's a wolf. Now, what is the purpose of me saying he's a wolf? Because the motif here, all the way up to the battle line that David runs quickly to the battle line, is that there's a shepherd for my people Israel. That's the point that the story God is telling in the history. And this guy is like, as David will say, he's like the things that come after the flock. He's the threat to the flock. Now, well, how will Pastor Dave apply that to us? The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders in his farewell address said, there, is going to be, there will be hard times for you in the ministry of the gospel. Savage wolves will come in among the flock and not spare it. You shepherds need to be wary of the, of the wolves. And boy, pastors, we want to be inclusive. Everyone's welcome. Y'all, come. We want you to be part of things. But if you turn into a wolf, you start to kind of have wolfy tendencies. We start to have slingshotty tendencies as pastors because we're supposed to protect the flock that's been allotted to our charge. And so uh, this story certainly resonates with me because it shows you a shepherd, sees a wolf, says, oh, I know what to do with that. He's got skills, he's got a resume, he has a history, and he's been faithful with what's been entrusted to him. And that's really something that's going to keep coming up again and again. But you've got to have a bad enough villain to have a, a great enough hero. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel and said to them, and I want you to notice as you read Bible stories, even the stories of the cross, the stories of Christmas, as you read the narratives, watch that the events themselves that we think are so focal, and they are for what they are, the nailing Christ to the cross, they're very quick in their statements. She had her child. And, but what comes out in the stories, the way they're told very often is the dialogue, is what the people are saying around the events to give you a sense of what it meant to them, what it should mean to you. And it isn't that they didn't say these things. It's that the writers selected these aspects of it, the dialogues, the, <coughs> excuse me, the interactions. The writer selects these things so that you can enter the story and participate in it and understand the significance of the events that are very short. I mean, just one verse, he kills him with skull fracture. Just one little verse. There's no way to film this that, that isn't just like a little short. There's no, there's no way to tell this story dramatically with it being more than 15 minutes and it, it'd be anything. It's, it's at least this, this scene. It's just short. It has to be short. But, but the lead up is long because we're supposed to feel the fear of the people based on what Goliath is going to say now. Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Now, why do people draw up in battle array? Because they're soldiers, and they're an army, and they're there to do the, the job of an army and soldiers. But I think part of what he's asking is, are you? Where are the men? Am I not uh, the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Of course, this is the most famous instance in world history that we know of, of single combat. I contend it's the most famous instance. Yes, it's Judean. Yes, it's written by Jews. It's Israelite literature. It's their folk story, but it's not a folk story. This is history. This is their big, part of their big origin story of how the nation grew to greatness in the monarchy for a very short time. But it's the greatest battle of single combat in world history, I contend. But other cultures have it too. 
other cultures, especially the Greeks, and we think the Philistines are related to them somehow, and the archaeology on that is very challenging of the Greek sea peoples, but it sure looks like it the way, the way he's asking for single combat. If you have a soldier, in verse 9, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants, but if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. But, you know, all is fair in love and war, Right? would we really fulfill the deal? Would we really keep that covenant? We've got five guys. One of them will fight you. You've got a 50,000-man army. But if one of our five guys beats your one guy, then you know, we, we get to take your army over and we'll rule over you. That's really not how it works. In the, in the, the geopolitics, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a chess game going on and there is force and there is... I can't move here because I will be stopped or beaten by this thing over here. And we have these checks and balances in the, the, the wrestling match of, of military affairs. And it seems nice that if we win, you'll let us rule you. But it's also very unlikely. Actually, what happens in the story is whoever wins the battle of single combat gets the initiative and that's a big deal. The hearts of the people are a big deal in how you fight, especially when it's hand-to-hand like they had to fight. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That's the challenge. And so you're supposed to feel the pit. We're going to fight. It's a bully. Grabs you at 9 o'clock in the morning. Says, we're going to fight at 3 o'clock over by the swing set. And now you've got this. You're the reader. You're receiving this like the Israelites heard it. And you're, notice you're being invited to enter the, the conflict. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is their response. This is what they think about that message. And that is a big contrast as you watch it with what David's going to say. And you've all read this story many times, but I'm just going to highlight this contrast. Who's the shepherd? The shepherd sees there's a wolf. Oh, 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 there's a wolf. Is that the way the shepherd that's, that's able to competently guard the flock, is that how he thinks about this? Right? But that's how they think because it, it's a threat to them. It's a risk. We're, in, we're dismayed and greatly afraid. They're sheep. They're not. Nobody here so far is functioning like the shepherd. There's a wolf out there. He's threatening the flock. Um, man, someone should do something about that. Why? Why is there no heart? Why is there no David? Because it takes a David. It takes somebody with God's heart, a heart, a man after God's own heart. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite. Now, notice what just happened in the story. We just switched from, from the summary that they're afraid of the battle that is being invited. And then we switch, the camera switches over to David in his flock, in his pasture flock, pasturing the flock. Now, David was the son of Ephrathite, that's Bethlehem, Ephrathah, of Bethlehem and Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And you might say, don't we know this from chapter 16? Yes, we do, but now we know it again. And that is repetition, and you learn by repetition, and so we're getting the fundamentals of the origin story of this um, this Davidic dynasty, which, guess what, goes on forever and ever and ever in Jerusalem over all the nations with David's greater son, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, ruling over the nations. Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men, and the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to battle. So the head shepherd of the country has three good-looking, prom- you know, promising sons that Samuel was, was impressed with, 
And what is it? Uh, it's uh, Eliab and Abinadab and Shema, the three oldest sons. They're with Saul. So he's got, I mean, that's four warriors right there. There's four shepherds. But none of them are shepherds in the story. Nobody. This is the sword and the stone, right? Who has the right to rule England? Who can pull the sword out of the stone? Who has the right to be a deacon? Somebody that does the service to the church, someone that works in the service, that's do it. Do the job of the, of the thing that you want to do. I once had a man ask me after visiting the church a couple of times, he said, how do you become a deacon here? I said, well, come ask me that in about five years, right? It, 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 not five years. It's not a time limit thing. It's just like we don't even know you. Have, do you know Jesus as your Savior, right? There's a process that you would go through of development and service and, and so this is what you're seeing. These men, they're not doing the work, and yet they would want to receive the, everybody would want to be, to get the, the accolade for being the king or being, being the great shepherd, but, but you have to do the work. David was the youngest. Now, the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Why is he going back and forth to Saul? This is a little pop quiz from chapter 16. Why does David go back and forth from Saul? Yeah, he's the, he's the court musician. He's the, he's the therapy for Saul when he's having his fits of demonic oppression that says in 1 Samuel 16, David would play the, the harp and it would soothe him and the, 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 the tormenting spirit would leave him. And so David is, David is coming back and forth in that ministry, which is really important because David is key to Saul's sanity and state of mind. He's a pretty important person. Saul doesn't know who he is <laughs> in the story as you read it. David went back and forth. Okay, so in verse 16, back to the antagonist, the camera switches back from David going back and forth. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. So we, we're back. Now everybody's got that feeling in their stomach again. Here is the big guy with all his uh, many words. That's a wolf speaking uh, these uh, words. Now, now, if you have a, a, a spear with a 600 shekel spear tip and you're good at it you can use that as a as a thrusting weapon as the f3 would if you are i mean if you are goliath and your body isn't just tall but filled out enough to carry all this weight and use it and be a powerful warrior as saul will say um, then you're not just all talk right we have this thing we say about bullies you know just when you have a bully he's a coward inside and he thinks you're weak and he can prey on you and so what you do with a bully is you um, you wait for a, a legitimate opportunity and punch him in the nose and his nose bleeds and he sees that <gasps> it hurts and he's bleeding and then he's, his cowardly heart manifests itself and he's, he's finished. That's a bully. That's somebody. But that's not apparently what Goliath is. This isn't a, a story about showing down somebody that's just all talk. This is somebody that truly is a very dangerous threat and David resolves it in seconds, in seconds of, of violence. Then Jesse said to David, his son, now this is to me one of the most important parts of the story, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese, the commander of their thousand, look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them for Saul and they are all, and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Okay, 
The reason I think this is so important is because we don't know much about David and his father and their interactions. We know that his father didn't count him among the sons when Samuel said, bring me your sons. We don't know uh, much about Jesse's dealings. We know he's, got, he's into agriculture. He's heard a bunch of the products, uh, perhaps, of his, of his business, or else he does business that buys these things. I mean, think about the things you know about Jesse. Um, you, we really, he's not a very uh, developed character, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to know him uh, by and by in, in eternity. But, but right now, um, what we're seeing is that David has been given assignments by his father, and he is apparently faithful at carrying them out. The relationship between David and his father, while not rounded out, is very clear that David as the son always does the will and direction of the father when it's the father's prerogative to send him or to, to, to assign him, the son does what the father assigns. He is a man after God's own heart. Now, do we have an, any instance of that in theological uh, matters? Do we know of any theological idea where a son always does the will of his father? See, that, watch the relationships as these things develop. I'm not saying that Samuel is putting an intentional type of Christ in here. Or that God, I don't know that. I, don't, I can't claim that. But what I can say is that David's faithful in his father's household, does what his father sends him to do. And he will be charged with not doing that. The reason I bring it up is what Eliab's going to say here in a minute. So David arose early in the morning, left the flock with the keeper. That word is shamar, or shamar, the, the word is uh, Shamar, as a participle, one who guards or keeps. There's another person that was available to hand the sheep to. And he took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. The word commanded, savah, is the word for giving commands, like the Ten Commandments and when God issues commands. I'm, I'm, I'm not overplaying this, that the way the story says it, that he's fulfilling what is entrusted to him. Now, I want you to understand this. When God gives us his commands... When an authority that's delegated from God drops on us a command that he has the authority to give. Sometimes people give up commands they don't have the authority to give. That's the problem of our constitutional republic. We're struggling with, with commands that, that we see you no know, governing authority. We don't have a right to make these commands. And that's, that's a, always been a challenge for us. But, but when you have God saying, this is what I want, you can do two things with that. You can say yes or no, Right? But the yes can be done in a couple different ways. You can say, yes, God commanded it. <sighs> okay. I'll go do the thing that you told me to do because you're God and I'm not and I'll do the thing. And you can have a bad attitude about the command and you can say this is burdensome and odious to me and I don't like having to do things that I don't feel like doing. I was going to watch cartoons and I have to get up and go slop the hogs or whatever it is and I don't want to do those things. But I'll do it grudgingly. You can act that way with God's commands or with the commands of any authority. But if you're like David, I contend you're going to take, or let's just forget David for a second. If you're like Jesus, you're going to take the command, the commission, the delegation from God, and you're going to see it as a sacred trust that becomes one of the most wonderful words that ever existed in all of English, and it's the word duty. You're going to see the wonder, the 
beauty of God saying, I'm about something. I've got an agenda. I'm doing something. I'd like you to join me in this. This is now on you. It becomes for us a sacred trust where we now have something that we can worship God with. I can throw this back to you in response, in gratitude. Christian duty is really wonderful. And if you don't have an appetite for it, you should ask God. No, you should beg God to help me sense this. When you've given me a sacred trust, let me enjoy the privilege of joining you in your works. There's an argument in theology about whether God acts independently or, or uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, I even forget the theological term all of a sudden. Isn't that lucky for you? Um, God acts uh, by himself and we aren't really actors. We're just kind of puppets that he's, he's just moving around the chessboard. Or that he invites us to work with him, to walk with him, to minister with him. And if you watch the text, the inductive conclusion is that God is very much in his sovereignty arranging history where he says, this is what I'd like you to do, and then you have to make a choice. Will you join him? That's how all commands work. All commands are God says, don't do this or do this, ultimately. And you and I have to choose whether we will not or where we will, what we'll do with that command. It's a sacred delegation. That's what radical stewardship really takes you to is that you have the ability to choose and God has communicated his revelation to you what are you going to do with it the first thing to do with God's revelation when he tells you something is believe it that you believe in God and you believe in what he's saying that's the first thing the first thing is I believe what he's saying I believe him I believe that if he says it it's true if it's a command to me then I'm responsible for it that's the first thing is to believe it the second thing to do with that, though, once you've understood the command, once you believe that it is a command that is for you, you actually have to, in faith, trusting him that he has you, that he'll provide for you, that it's what pleases him, you have to lovingly, faithfully do it. And doing the word is not believing that I've got responsibilities. Doing the word is fulfilling those responsibilities. God did not give us the Holy Spirit so that we could learn. He gave us the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 24 so that we could bear witness. Luke 24, Acts 1, the Holy Spirit would empower them to be his witnesses throughout the world. We have work to do. You have impossibly high work to do. You have work that you couldn't possibly do. Want to know what it is? What's the work God gave you to do that's impossible for you? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Who here is so narcissistic as to think that from your own resources and your own flesh, you can love to the standard and quality of the Lord Jesus Christ? Nobody is going to raise their hand on that. You may secretly think you got it, but you don't. We don't have it in us. We need the fruit of the Spirit to be love. We need God to bring this love through us. And, but he commands it. That's right. He commands it, then he equips you to fulfill the command. You have the Holy Spirit. Do the thing in the power God gave you. This is the nature of radical ownership or radical stewardship. It's not about giving money. It's about my life is his. And the challenge to you that I'm offering throughout this study is will you disciple up? He's got a wonderful calling for you, a wonderful sacred commission. Are you willing? Are you willing to say, yes, I will be about your work 
in gratitude for the work Christ has done for me, the work that he's doing in me. I will let him, I will submit to him doing that through me as I move forward. So he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, array shouting the war cry. Israel now is going to, David's going to find out what he's coming on. We've already seen the threat. We know David's walking into a trap. He's walking into this battle situation where everybody's stressed out. Oh, everyone has PTSD over Goliath's pronouncements. Oh, we're going to get killed by Goliath. Israel, the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper. So he has all this stuff that he's supposed to deliver to Saul. He drops it off in the, in the holding area. And he runs to the battle line entered in order, and, and entered in order to greet his brothers. I think verse 22 is called foreshadowing. Do you know what foreshadowing is in literature? It's when they show you something that's going to be important later. That little phrase, he ran to the battle line. That happens twice in the 1 Samuel 17. He ran to the battle line twice. The first time, because he's going to see what's happening. He wants to know. The second time, because the battle line is where Goliath is standing, and it's within range of his sling. And he runs quickly to go meet Goliath. He, he doesn't, he's not slow. He's not so cautious that he's slow. I don't think he's uncautious. Is that the way, incautious? I don't think he's, he's um, not a careful person. I just think he moves quickly because he has good instincts. As he was talking with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. So the shepherd shows up, and he hears the wolf's growl. He hears the snarl. That's what's happening in the story. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And that is an interesting little tidbit. Oh, do you mean just for doing our job, there's riches and, and glory and honor? Yeah. But isn't it due to you to be paid for your duty, for your service? Here's the thing about serving God. There is a judgment seat of Christ, and the word the Apostle Paul and the power of the Spirit says in 2 Corinthians 5, the word he uses for the judgment seat of Christ is recompense. Recompense, that's an old English word for repayment. It is something that God considers to be due to those that he's going to recompense. It's payback. We have the exact same picture in different language in 1 Corinthians 3 when you have the gold, silver, precious stones passage and the bonfire of the vanities and the wood, hay, and stubble. Whatever comes out of that fire that where you're building materials when tested by fire, you receive back. You get back. That's the picture of those that disciple up and enter into, as rank-and-file believers, the ministry of the gospel that God has called us to. Yes, there is in God magnificent recompense for service rendered. Absolutely. That is the way of our creator. Who says it's not that way? Genesis 3.5. You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. God is holding back what he might give you. You could be so much more, but you can't be because God's holding you back. That's the satanic, diabolical implication that impugns God's character, and I think it gives Satan his name, slanderer. The slander is against God first. Now, there's, there's great recompense for David in 
or for whoever uh, does what David thinks is an obvious thing to do. And David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, um, <clears throat> I heard the rumors, but let's get some confirmation. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine, takes away the reproach from Israel? What will be done? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I want you to see the dichotomy. David said, what's the reward package, showcase, showdown? What's the thing you get if you do this? No taxes. Your house is free in Israel. You get the king's daughters. You become the king's son-in-law. That's at least a duke or a duchy. That's at least uh, some sort of aristocratic title, an earl, right? I, really? We're now aristocracy in, in the kingdom because this uncircumcised Philistine should be killed for what he's saying, not for what I'll get if I kill him. I think that's true in verse 26. Who is this man? Why, there's a reward for what's being said. Who is he that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I do not believe David is externally motivated by the wealth that's offered to the shepherd when he shows up. I think David is, personally, I think he's surprised that we have to do this with a reward. That's my theory. Doesn't say that, but that's my theory. The people answered him in accord with this word saying, thus it will be for the man who kills him. So there's a, there's a solid bounty on Goliath's head over and above David's indignant, in, in, indignation at Goliath's dishonoring of God's people. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger burned against David and said, last thing we knew about Eliab was the first thing we knew about him is that he's the oldest brother. He looks like he should be king. And Samuel said, this must be the one. And God said, no. So Eliab has been rejected as probably he thought he might be an obvious choice too. It doesn't say that, but maybe. Eliab has definitely been rejected in favor of his youngest brother, David. Now that's a hard pill to swallow. Sibling rivalry is a real problem. It's because every sibling has a sin nature. But look what Eliab says. He's a, he's a soldierly looking soldier. He's been there. He's the oldest son of Jesse. He should be able to shepherd up, right? Nope. He is going to attack David. Now, what every Israelite should be doing is attacking Goliath, but he's attacking David. Why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now, this is very interesting if you develop the story. And I'm dogmatic about what Samuel's doing here, what the writer's doing. Watch this. Watch this. He says, I know your insolence and your wickedness of your heart. Where have we heard already that man looks on the outward appearance, God doesn't look as man looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Eliab was rejected in that story because God looks on the heart. His heart is rejected. What is he saying? We don't have any other words for Eliab. Let's guess, let, let's, let's conjecture Eliab is a believer, right? Let's conjecture that we'll see him, like we'll see Samuel and these other heroes down the line. I'd love for that to be true. The Bible doesn't say that. I'd love for that to be true. Hey, Eliab, you have some really unfortunate lines in the Bible. <laughs> what an interesting life you must have lived that this is what we know about you. Is that I know the insolence and wickedness of your heart for you've come down in order to see the battle. David doesn't say, actually, I'm actually here to be the battle. But he is, and that's what happens in the story. So Eliab in this, is craven, he's petty, he ends up looking like the, the greatest loser in the story, except perhaps of Goliath. Why? Because he's guilty. 
Because he, like Saul, like everyone else, they should be standing where David's going to go stand and do what David's going to do. And they can't. They don't have it. They don't have the heart. They aren't the men that God is raising up to do this. And so they can't be what they should be. Who's the shepherd here? Not Eliab. And perhaps I think he's validating what we saw in 1 Samuel 16. He's, he's not the one. He's one of these sheep. And he's after David because David doesn't look like a sheep. He's asking shepherd questions. I love the pictures of the sheep. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? He could have said, well, my heart wasn't rejected, Eliab. He didn't say that. He said, what have I done now? What's, you, you, obviously, there's a long-standing problem between the oldest and the youngest here. Was it not just a question? And this is interesting to me. I call this David's tenacity because when someone speaks into your situation and they put you down and say, you can't do it or you don't have it or well, you know, this is what's wrong with you, and it, it might become a distraction. You might start listening and believing these poisonous words. David's not doing anything wrong. He doesn't have an insolent heart. He's not he, particularly... He's not guilty of anything that Eliab's accusing him of. But how easy is it for someone, especially the oldest brother, to speak and us to believe the lie that he's telling? David is tenacious. He knows what he's about. He's had time to reflect on the things of God in the pastures, I contend. I think he has a very strong relationship with God. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, he had built his house on the rock. Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. So thank you for your data point, Eliab. I'm going to keep checking with the other soldiers that aren't jealous brothers that have a problem, personal grievance against me. So now we have this, the court scene switches from the, the troops and the scuttlebutt and the, the rumor mill to the king's uh, presence, whatever audience the king has. We sometimes imagine this as Saul sitting on some chair and David coming before him. Maybe, maybe there's a tent. These are people in, in, uh, in a battlefield um, uh, deployment posture. So he's in the talk. He's in the tactical operations center of the king, the commander in chief. And he goes to Saul and he says, let no man's heart. This is David. He speaks first to the king in the story. We don't know. We, we don't know what was actually first said, but the way Samuel portrays it, David has a word for the king. Why? Because he's the shepherd because he sues the king with his songs, because he's got the word that, the, that, that is the right answer. He's the shepherd. Let no man's heart fail on account of him, for your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a Na'ar, while he has been a warrior from his Na'arot. You are a young man, not a 13-year-old probably, possibly, you're, you are of barely recruited age. He has been uh, a warrior since recruited age, apparently a long time ago. So, so you're just getting started in a military posture. He's not even part of the army yet. He has been a warrior for a long time. That's what that means. It doesn't mean David is this little kid. We want to say little kid because it captures the kids. The story kind of captures their imagination. I think probably something like between 17 and 20. I think strong enough, he's, he's done adult things, as we'll read, um, in protecting the flock. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
That's, that's throwing a Medal of Honor on the table and saying, I've got this. I've already taken down two machine gun nests with a, with a, with a K-bar. I had a K-bar and, um, and some, um, you know, a Zippo lighter, and I took out a machine gun nest. That's what he's saying. He did a miraculous feat of military prowess against these animals. And military, I say, because violence, because it's combat, and it's single combat that he's describing. Now, if a, if a lion comes to get the flock, come get one of my dad's sheep, I might be tempted to say, that is the lion tax. The lion gets his cut. And, um, and I'll just make sure nobody falls off a cliff and we'll keep the, what's left. But that's not the heart of this shepherd. As you know, David is faithful in what's been entrusted to him. Look at verse 34. Your servant was tending his father's sheep. He really has no other resume. How's your resume? Are you faithful with whatever God delegates down to you and trusts you? Does it become a sacred trust that is your duty? Do you thrive in knowing this is my duty and I'm doing it? Do you reflect on your day and say, what had God entrusted to me and did I steward it for him with the power of the spirit that he's given me to walk, walk worthy of this calling? Did I do this with what's been entrusted? Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them since he's taunted the armies of the living God. I love the moral component. I am on the high ground here. God definitely wants us to take this guy out because he's taunting him, and that's our role as national Israel. And so David is a better executive for the law, for the priest nation that God has set among the nations. He's better at executing the law and the spirit of the law than, than the king. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. By the way, the words in Hebrew for paw and hand are the same words. So it is almost like the Philistine has the same equipment, but they, we all have hands. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. And David took them off. Boy, does this story build up for that three seconds of skull fracture. But the story really, really develops. Now, why is David, why is David uh, with Saul's armor, something that would, would bring our, something to memory? Why, do you remember this in 1 Samuel 16 at the end? He's not only playing the music for Saul, but he's also the king's armor bearer. That's his job. And so he's never really tried to use it, but he's maintained it, apparently. He's been part of the executive staff that deals with the armor. And yet he hasn't tested the armor. It hasn't been his job. What is David good with so far? He's good with grabbing beards and smiting uh, with the stick, perhaps. He strikes the, the lion with a stick. He's good with the sling, right? He's good with the harp. He's good with the instruments of the trust that's been entrusted to him. See how competence works? What is your trust? What has God entrusted to you? Are you developing competence with the thing he's entrusted to you? We'll close here, and we'll close on a challenge. When God entrusts us with something sacred like uh, shepherding, like caring for what belongs to him, understand it's all his. Whatever he's given to you, it's really his. And if you're his, then what you have is his. That's the idea. Do you see your life that way? Is your life his? Okay, if it is, if you say, yes, it is, then are you developing competencies with the things he's entrusted you? What's the highest and greatest thing he's given to you? His word? You're developing biblical competency? Can you... Can you handle the canon of Scripture? Do you know the Scriptures? Do you know God? 
He's given you access through Jesus Christ and his name into the presence of the Holy of Holies of heaven in Hebrews 9. You, through the veil, which is the flesh of Christ, can enter, as it were, the coattails of Jesus and go before the Father in prayer. That's a huge trust. Do you, are you competent in this? Are you a prayer? Do you know how to pray? I know it's sort of basic Christianity. Some of you are like, oh, don't tell me. I, I don't know how to pray. Well, are you watching the Bible on how this works? Or does prayer work for you like I so often hear? Well, I've asked and asked, but I haven't gotten what I asked, so I don't really talk anymore to him. Like that's any kind of model in the Bible for prayer. That's Aladdin and the genie. That's the wishes. They give me my three wishes. That's not prayer in the Bible. Are you communing with your creator according to his word? These are biblical competencies for the awesome sacred trust God has given you. Are you able to tell people why you have hope? Can you, 1 Peter 3.15, defend the faith and give a reason for the hope that's in you? I mean, there's a competency with a sacred trust. You are set as strangers in a strange land. We have this awesome missionary calling where this isn't our home. This world isn't our home. Jim Reeves was right. This world is not my home. Can you, can you see the need to develop some spiritual maturity, some competency in the Word, some competency with prayer? Some confidence with sharing your faith with the awesome sacred trust God has given you. Well, the lion prowling about looking to devour you doesn't want you to have these competencies. And he definitely wants you to say, well, it's just not the way people think around me, so I really don't want to share. Well, we will remain challenged, and um, I don't know if you all know how this story ends, but you can feel free to read ahead. We'll pick it up here uh, next Sunday. Our Father, thank you for the challenge of your word and the call, the claim to biblical competency or competency in the, t- in the task that you've assigned to us. You've given us such magnificent equipment that we can do the work that you've called us to do and you are perfect in your logistical equipping. Father, we have the Holy Spirit, we have your word, and we have challenges in front of us. I pray that you'll strengthen us in our faith and in the things that we need to sharpen on so that we'll be useful to you in a world that desperately needs the answers that it doesn't want. Father, give us courage and competence as we move forward. And for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, Father, we pray for them to understand the words of eternal life, that there is nothing we can do to deserve your grace. It is favor you bestow upon us because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and there is no hope for any human being in our own works, in our own commitments, in our own uh, what, we, what we bring, Father, it is what Jesus did on the cross and our only hope is to trust in him. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead. Our only hope is in his work. Father, let us in that perspective work the works of your grace as you work through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.